First verse, Amazing Grace. If you could put those words back up there. Look, let's just look at those words for a moment. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. Wretch is just an old English word that just means a dirty, rotten scoundrel. Filthy, a sinner. Amen. That's who I was, but he, he saved me by his grace. Amen. I once was lost. I was lost, but he found me. I, I didn't find him. He, he found me, and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Amazing, amazing grace. Amen. We're going to talk about grace tonight. Talk about it from in a little different sense. The title of our lesson is The Dangers of Perverted Grace. The Dangers of Perverted Grace. Our scripture text is taken from Jude chapter 1. Or really, it's just one chapter in the book of Jude. And we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you 
and peace and love be multiplied. Well, that's just a great greeting, isn't it? Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. But watch this in verse 3. It says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. (laughs) Judah's saying, I've sat down here with my pen and paper. And I started to write to you about the common salvation. I had something I wanted to write to you about. (laughs) But then he goes on to say, it was needful for me. To write unto you. In other words, I was going to write unto you about one thing that I wanted to write about. But God kind of pricked my heart and showed me something that I needed to write to you about. That's actually how I feel tonight because I was planning on teaching something else. And this morning about 530, the Lord showed me this passage of scripture. And and then he said, that's what you need to teach tonight. (laughs) And I said, okay, Lord, way to set me up. I read verse 3. He said, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And I got all caught up in the fact that as preachers and teachers, and by the way, it's very true, but we need always teach what needs to be taught, not what we want to teach. All right? I got all caught up in that, and then the Lord flipped the script on me when I read the next verse. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men. Look at this. This is a phrase that really caught my attention. Turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. We'll talk about what that means later. And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, struck me, and the Lord said, that's what you need to teach on tonight. And he gave me the title, The Dangers of Perverted Grace. Something that is perverted means that it's twisted, and it's not used for the proper purpose, and and, and used in the proper way. Um, The word perverted is often used when we talk about abuse. And when we abuse grace, there's danger in that. Amen. The book of Jude is actually a very short chapter. It's sandwiched in between the epistles of John that bear his name, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation that was also written by John. Uh, This book is is somewhat overlooked, and, and many times we gloss over these tiny little books of the Bible, but Um, You know, they say that dynamite comes in small packages. (laughs) And I believe in this, when you read this, if you really will slow down and read the book of Jude, um, you could get some dynamite out of it. That's really a true description of this, what is somewhat obscure book of the Bible. Um, And so it may be small and often overlooked, but it is packed full of power. And we do ourselves a great disservice if we overlook or gloss over the writings of Jude. Um, However, we need to lay some foundation tonight. So before we get into our main lesson, bear with me as as I lay this foundation. It's important for us to understand the background setting of a writing of the Bible if we are going to get the full understanding of what we are reading. It's, It's true with any book of the Bible. It's true with anything, any passage of Scripture that you read in the Bible. Um, But when we read the book of Jude, we really need to understand 
uh, who's writing it, why he's writing, and who he's writing to. And, and actually, that, that's true of any passage of Scripture that we read. Uh, more misunderstanding and misinterpretation of Scripture has been created due to a lack of understanding of the setting than perhaps any other reason. So whenever you endeavor to study the Bible, you need to look at a book and you need to, you need to know some things. You need to ask some questions of it before you start reading it so that you, you, can, you can understand, so you can read it from the right viewpoint. And so let's tonight, let's answer some questions about the author and the audience before we really get into, into our main point. Um, and, and just keep in mind that these are good questions that you should always ask when you start reading the book of the Bible. So first, who is the author? All right, many times you look at books of the Bible and they're named after the, the men who wrote them. And the same is true, actually, with the with the book of Jude. It's called it, it, uh, the author. His name was Judas, but he um, he you know shortened it up a little bit. Maybe he didn't want to be associated with uh, Judas Iscariot because it was not that Judas. Right. Not not Iscariot. Um, uh, but it is his name was Judas. Uh, maybe he shortened it to Jude. Maybe he was trying to, you know, come down on a level and be a little more informal uh, to the people he was writing to. Maybe he was trying to be humble. Maybe he just didn't want to be associated with Judas Iscariot. For whatever reason, he calls himself Jude, and that's where we have the, um, the, uh, the name for the book of the Bible. He is referenced particular by John, particularly uh, by John uh, in a question that he asked Jesus. In John chapter 14 and verse 22, Judas Jude saith unto him, not Iscariot, and that's how we know it's Jude and not, not Judas Iscariot. Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? And we're not going to talk about the meaning of that scripture and everything, but that's just showing you that this is who we're talking about. He is actually uh, most likely the half-brother of Jesus that is referenced by Matthew. In Matthew 13, 55, it's not this, the carpenter's son. It's not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. All right, so it's likely, it's, it, it can't be fully proven, but it's likely that that Judas is the same Judas that was the disciple of Jesus. Um, so why is it important that we know who wrote the book? Anybody want to tackle that question? Why is it important that we know the author of the book? Brother Sam? In this case, absolutely. He didn't. He wanted to make sure that everybody knew that it wasn't Judas Iscariot, right? I think I saw Sister Marie's hand, and then uh, we'll, we'll get um, over here. So. Um, it's very, and I'm going to ask that if you have comments or you want to answer questions, please come to the microphone. It helps Sister Ellen to hear, and, it, and we also have a live stream going on as well. Um, if you don't have a microphone, then just come to this microphone. It has a cover on it, even though it might not look like it does. Um, so what Sister Marie said is that he was either the brother or some people think he was the cousin of Jesus. Um, either way, he was a close relative of Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. It's important to see his viewpoint. Um, he's writing from a little bit different viewpoint from some of the other disciples and some of the other authors of Scripture. And so it's important to see that viewpoint. Brother Javier, I believe you had a. Yeah, why, why, why is it important to know who was writing the book?
the microphone. We, we can't hear you. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, but we just, we're just we trying to make sure that everybody can hear. We also have the live stream going on, so everybody needs to be able. You're not going to be seen on camera when you're in that microphone, by the way. <laughs> I, I agree uh, with your wife, but um, it is also good, like you said, too, to reveal, to make sure that uh, the believers are not following somebody that was a traitor at the time being just because of the name with sim similarity names at that time as well. And I know that uh, he, he did it to warn the believers of the danger of the false teaching about God. So it was very important. It was kind of showing fruit, like you said, it's dynamite. So it's like, uh, you know, the Bible says Jesus has said too around those times that, you know, we'll be uh, around wolves. The sheep shall be around wolves that we had to be right. uh, diligent about how to receive the word of God. Absolutely. Um, I think uh, most importantly, I think it's it's important that we understand it. Um, he was a disciple of Jesus. He was counted with the 12 apostles. And knowing this gives us a foundation for his authority. Right. They they knew who was writing this book. And now we can look back and say, OK, he had the right. He had the authority um, to be an author of divinely inspired scriptures. He also had the authority to address the issues and problems in the church that he was going to, to um, write to. So, for instance, if somebody you'd never heard of just wrote a letter to this church and started giving specific instructions and directions and rebukes. First of all, pastor probably wouldn't even <laughs> read it to you, but if it were, you probably would be like, well, who is this person? I don't know who this person is. Never heard of this person and doesn't have any 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 connections to our church. Um, doesn't have any any pastoral authority. Um, doesn't, you know, there's he doesn't really have a right. Who are you to to tell me? And and while we have to be very careful not to get caught up in you know, the positions and the titles and, and, and all that stuff. It's also important that we don't listen to just anybody. All right. We need to make sure that the people we listen to have the right to speak the things that they're speaking. That's why even as the assistant pastor, I'm careful about some things that I that I say and some things I teach on uh, because I don't want to overstep my bounds. Whenever I preach in another church and maybe for some of you younger ministers um, and some of you that will one day be ministers, when you're preaching in somebody else's church, you need to be very careful not to try to be their pastor while you're there. <laughs> right there. There's lines you don't cross. And if, if you have something that you're not sure about, you consult with that pastor uh, before you start talking along those lines. So prime example, I very seldom will talk about tithes when I go to another church unless I really feel directed and I feel like I have the authority from that pastor to do that. I don't I won't get into that too much. Right? If I feel like I need to, I will call the pastor and say, hey, you know, I really feel like the Lord's given me this. Does this line up with your teaching on tithes or do you give me the, the permission to do it? And if he doesn't, then I won't I won't go there. Right? Because it, it, it's it's his flock. He's the shepherd and God's put him over that that flock. And and I want to be very careful. And so it's important for us to know who's talking and, and who's who's writing. All right. Now, that being said. As I said, we're not all caught up in titles and positions and all that stuff. In spite of Jude's high calling, 
the, the authority that was inherent therein, notice how Judas addresses himself. He does not call himself an apostle or a disciple, but he calls himself the servant of Jesus Christ. And he, signi- he, he, he clarifies a little more by saying he's the brother of James. Again, so they know he's not Judas Iscariot probably, but um, we get too caught up sometimes in titles and positions and names. It's, it's, it's not the title or the position or the name that defines a person or that gives a person authority in the kingdom of God. It is a man or a woman who is a faithful servant of Jesus Christ who will gain authority and, and power in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. And, and if you didn't take anything else from tonight, you want to get power with God, you need to be a faithful servant of God. So Jude must have taken heart uh, Jesus' teaching on leadership. Because Jesus said, whoever will be great among you, let him be your servant. He said, he that shall be last shall be first, and he that shall be first shall be last, and so on and so forth. Um, Whoever would be the leader, Jesus said, you should be the servant. And so you can read that in Mark and Matthew and and, and throughout the writings there of Jesus. Um, So Jude was, yes, I I am a servant of Jesus Christ. This is who I am. Um, But we uh, we need to understand, first and foremost, that, you know, he was an apostle. He had the authority to, to say what he was about to say to the church. All right. So. To whom is Jude writing? So he tells us to whom he's writing. He said, I'm writing to those who have been sanctified, preserved, and called. We could get into a full theological study of all those words and probably stay there all night just discussing what those three words mean. But in essence, Jude was writing to the church. He was writing to people who had already been saved according to Bible salvation According to Acts 2.38, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. They had had that experience. He was not writing to sinners. He was not writing to other religions. He was not even writing to Jews who had not embraced Jesus as their Messiah. He was writing to the church, people who had experienced Bible salvation. So anyone who had, has not experienced full Bible salvation cannot really read and understand this letter fully because it was not meant for them. Just like you can't go to the book of Romans to find a plan of salvation. Because the book of Romans was written to church folk as well. Folks who had already experienced Acts 2.38, who had already experienced Bible salvation. You can't go to Romans 10.9 and say that's a plan of salvation because Paul was not writing with the intent to tell them how to be saved or to, or to people who needed to know how to be saved because they already knew how to be saved. So again, it's important that we know who they're writing to. This is background. This is setting. Whenever you're studying scripture, you've got to understand who is being written to and who's doing the writing. Um, and, and by the way, we can't plain, claim promises and benefits in books of the Bible that aren't written to us either. <laughs> you know, you, you get people out there saying, um, you know, my God shall supply all my needs and, 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 and greater is he that is in me. And, and um, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. And all those chapters, all, the, all those verses are written to people who had already experienced Acts 2.38. If you don't have the Holy Ghost, you can't claim those verses. All right. So we know now who the author of the book of Jude is. 
and we know the audience to whom he wrote. Now we need to ask another question. Why is he writing? And maybe this is even more important than the other two questions. Why is Jude writing? The purpose of this letter, what, what is that purpose? This includes when he was writing it, the circumstances around the writing. Um, it, 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 you know, wh- what, is, what is the purpose? Why did he feel the need to write what he was about to write? And he actually tells us right up front what he, you know, he tells us, I wanted to write about the common salvation. In other words, he wanted to preach Acts 2.38. Everybody likes to preach Acts 2.38. No, I ought to preach it. All these people are going to repent, get baptized, get the Holy Ghost, and, you know, I'm going to get a big name because 45 people got the Holy Ghost when I preached, and there were only 43 people there, and it's going to (laughs) be... He wanted to write about common salvation. Now, that common salvation implicitly tells us that there is only one way to be saved. That the salvation experience should be a common one for all who claim to be saved. All this, I'm going to go to that denomination and tell me one thing, and that denomination and tell me another thing, and that denomination and tell me another thing. No, you better find out what the Bible says about salvation. Find out what Jesus said. Find out what the apostles said. Make sure they line up and then stick with it. And when you look at Acts 2.38, that's exactly what Jesus said. And that's exactly what the apostles said. And there's one common way to be saved. There's not all 45 different ways to get saved. All right, there's one way. And there's only one name. Under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. And what is that name? Jesus. All right, so... Now, Jude says he gave all diligence, or the word means, that phrase means to make haste or to earnestly and seriously write. He wanted to write an encouraging letter regarding the salvation they had all alike experienced. However, there was another and a more urgent assignment given to him by the Lord. In fact, he said it was needful for him to write about something else. The word is the Greek word anake. It means necessity that is imposed upon somebody, either by circumstances or by law of of duty. In other words, God imposed upon Jude. It was Jude's God-given duty because of circumstances or certain things that were happening in the church amongst those who had already experienced Bible salvation, common salvation, It was his duty, and he was imposed upon by God, given a direct command by God to write a very strong message and a warning to his people. And I said it, and I'll say it again. I must always seek the mind of God in all of my teaching or preaching opportunities. Amen. And I believe I have done so tonight. And so this more urgent writing assignment that was given to Jude was to tell those in the church To earnestly contend for the faith. That phrase earnestly contend means to struggle for something. It comes from two root words that basically give you two different ideas here. One is to enter a contest and contend for a prize. Or to fight or contend with adversaries. So it's like you're getting in a boxing match. Or you're getting into some sort of, uh, of, of game of something where you're trying your best uh, to win and, and, and uh, you know, trying to win a prize, right? And he said, 
um, you need to earnestly contend for the faith. Because guess what? We are fighting for a prize. We are trying to get a prize. Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Right? We're, there's a prize for us to strive for. It implies the idea of struggling with difficulties or dangers. If you think you're going to be a Christian and never have any difficulties and dangers, you've got another thing coming. I mean, God's favorite, God's favorite phrase to give Marie and I right now is furnace of affliction. Not my favorite, but that's, what he, that's where he's got me right now. And that's all right, because the Bible says, I have chosen you out of the furnace of affliction. And by the Bible says, many are called, but few are chosen. And if God wants to put me in the furnace of affliction so I can be chosen, then so be it. I'll take it. I'll let it do its perfect work. I'll let him do what he wants to do in me. And, you know, I want to be chosen, not just called. Amen? Amen. I'm off track. Let me get back here to our notes. Paul told Timothy, you need to fight the good fight of faith. And then he said later that he himself had fought the good fight and that he had kept the faith. And then I want you to look at Colossians chapter 1. Do you have time to spell that? Are we good? Am I going too fast? Colossians chapter 1. All right. Verses 28 and 29. He says, and this is Paul again writing to the church at, at Coloss, whom we preach, talking about Jesus, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now look at this in verse 29. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. And the reason I put that in there is because that word labor and striving, it, it goes right back to that earnestly contending. It's the same phrase. Paul saying, I'm earnestly contending. According to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now, this is, this is very, this is, a, this is pretty cool in the Greek when you look it up. Working, the word working is the Greek noun energeia, from where we get the word energy, right? It means the works of supernatural power. It's a noun. In other words, it's a, it's a thing, a person, place, or thing. That's what a noun is, right? It's not an action word. It's an object. A microphone is a noun. Right? Um, you, can, you can take the word run, for instance. And if, I'm, if I say that I'm going to run, that means I'm gonna, I'm gonna, there's an action. Right? But if I said I'm going to go for a run, the word run then becomes a noun. It's a thing. Something I'm going to do, but it, it's considered a noun. But if I say I'm running, it's a verb, right? So and that's what this is at. So you got energia, which is the noun. And the only way it is used in the New Testament refers to the works of supernatural power. Sometimes it refers to the works of the devil and sometimes it refers to the works of God. But it's always used in the noun form of being uh, a supernatural Power, a work of supernatural power. Now, so Paul says, according to his working, according to the supernatural power of God working. The working of the supernatural power of God, according to that, which worketh in me mightily. Now, the word worketh is the verb energeo. If you look it up in Strong's Concordance, they're one right after the other. 
All right, it, this is the verb for energy. And it means to be operative, to be at work, to be putting forth power. It's not just a run, it's running. It's, it's not just uh, power, but it's power that's operating, power that is at work. Anybody ever heard of the word potential? Do you know what potential is? Potential is energy that's being wasted. In essence, for instance, this phone right here has the potential to make a phone call and reach to somebody across the world. Or even to somebody, you know, I could call Sister Ellen from right here. You know, it doesn't have to be across the world. But it has the power to do that. It has the potential to do that. But if I never dial the number and hit the button that says dial, it's not going to be able to fulfill its potential. You get that. All right? So I need to have the power of God, the supernatural power of God, but I need to have it working in me. I need to have it doing something in me. If I'm going to fight this good fight of faith, I need to do it according to the work of him working mightily in me. So Paul's using basically the same word in noun form and verb, in verb form to try to send a message. And, and, and Jude was doing the same thing. Like, look, you've got to earnestly contend. You've got you, you to fight this fight. But we've got to have power to do that. And so he's using the noun and verb of the same word to say that God was allowing his own power to operate through Paul to do powerful and mighty things. And then he says he does so mightily. The word mightily means miraculously. So that results in the miraculous. Listen, if you get the power of God operating in you, you will see the miraculous in your life. Preachers, if you want to see the miraculous in your ministry, you better get the power of God working in your life and in your ministry. I hope I never get up to preach or teach and don't have the power of God backing me up. I better just give it up at that point and go back to the prayer room for a while. I'm getting excited and I wasn't planning on it. The word mightily, it talks about miraculous, but it also means dunamis. It's dunamis. That's where we get the word power in Acts chapter 1-8. You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Paul was saying, when I fight this fight, I am doing so by the power of God to work supernaturally, flowing through and operating in me the way that it is supposed to work. That's the way it's supposed to be, saint of God. In other words, Paul was fighting the good fight of faith, but he was not doing it alone. And we are called to fight the good fight of faith, to earnestly contend for the faith, but we are not doing it alone either. Praise God. We have the same Holy Ghost that the Apostle Paul had. As long as we had the same experience he had, then we've got the same power, the same Holy Ghost and the same power. And he said in Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And in Ephesians 3.20, he said, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power, the dunamis, that works in us. The word worketh is the same as the verb energeo that Paul was talking about, and the word power is the word dunamis. And so uh, we, we need to make sure that 
there's not going to be exceeding abundantly happen in our life above all we ask or think unless we get the power of God working through us. Amen. Pastor preached about that a couple weeks ago. And I believe Sister Marie brought it up as well in her message on Sunday. Brother Kane, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that this power is that experience you're talking about, having that Holy Ghost, and it's for everyone. It's not just for a pastor or a preacher. God may give a special anointing for those offices, but this power is for everyone. You can look at Acts when uh, Philip went to Samaria. He was just a deacon. He was just serving. Literally, he was serving people. And then he went. He just followed the the power that God was working through him. He went to Samaria and preached revival, and next thing you know, they're getting baptized, and they said, all right, now we got to call some elders now. They called John and something down there with Peter, I believe, and then they lay hands on them, and they received the gift of the Holy Ghost. So it's not for people behind the pulpit. It's literally for every believer that's had that experience, and that's what God wants to do, not just have a few, but to mobilize his whole body. Absolutely 100% right. Jude, when he wrote this epistle, he didn't write it to preachers. There were not specifically to preachers, not the preachers only. I'm sure there were some preachers in the church. I hope there were some preachers in the church that he was writing to. But he wasn't writing just to the preachers. He was writing to the whole church. You need to earnestly contend for the faith. And you need to use the power that has been given you to be able to do it. And, that's, and, and when Paul was writing to Philippi, to Philippi and to Colossus and to Ephesus and to Galatia and to Corinth and to Rome, he was writing to all these different uh, different. Uh, churches he was writing to the people in the church not just the preachers amen by the way the same word for power is also used in, in the in for working uh the inner jail it's also used in first corinthians chapter 12 when he talks about the gifts of the spirit working in us and we, we we taught on that for a couple of weeks as well but here's the deal we must fight but we are not fighting alone god is fighting with us through us and for us if we're allowing him to, if we're abiding in him the way we're supposed to abide in him, if we're staying connected to him the way we're supposed to stay connected, if we're praying in the Holy Ghost the way we ought to pray in the Holy Ghost, Jude talks about that too later. We're probably not going to get to that tonight. But So what is that for which Jude tells us we are to fight? We've established that we're supposed to fight and we're supposed to earnestly contend for the faith. But what is he talking about when he says earnestly contend for the faith? All right. He says, we are to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. It refers in part to the common salvation, the message, but also to the truth of all the other teachings of the apostles. Now, when he says faith, it's actually the word pistis, which is which is the most often word that is translated faith in the New Testament is the Greek word pistis. In its most literal sense, that word means the conviction of the truth of anything. I want you to listen to me very carefully right now. The conviction of the truth of anything. Faith is not just easy believism, but rather it is an inner conviction of the truth that is found in God's word. As a matter of fact, there is no faith without the word of God because we've got to have faith in something. And the faith comes by the hearing of the word of God, right? Hearing comes by the word of God and faith comes by hearing. And it's hearing the word of God. And, and you know, I've got, in other, if, if I'm going to have this word operating in me and if it's going to produce faith, I, that means, in other words, I've got to believe and I've got to be fully persuaded and I've got to be completely convicted that every word in this book is true. 
That's the only way I'm going to stand. Amen. James was telling the church they must fight for the truth of what they professed to believe. They claim to be believers. They claim to have this common salvation. They claim to all be, you know, they claim to be apostolic. They claim to be Pentecostal. They claim to be, they claim to be Christians. They claim to be saints of God. You, you claim to believe this. You need to go ahead and fight for it if you truly believe it. Listen, it is not enough to know the truth. We must believe the truth to actually be truth. And by the way, I'm talking about absolute truth. There's no gray. It's either truth or it's not truth. There's no relativity when it comes to the word of God. Either it's true or it's not true. Either every word is true or no word is true. There's no relativity. There's no relative truth. It's absolute truth. We must believe the truth to actually be truth. But it's not enough even to believe the truth. But we need to be completely convicted and convinced that it is truth. Not just believe. I need to be com- convicted and convinced. I mean, that'll preach in and of itself. Convicted and convinced. That's what faith is. And this conviction, this level of, of me being convinced, will play itself out in my obedient actions that prove my faith. Because faith without works is what? So my obedient works will prove my faith. There is no faith without truth. Truth does no good without faith that it is true. Let me say that again. Truth does no good without faith that it is true. I've got to take truth with faith and believe that it really is true. It's no good without that. So it is this truth, it is this faith, it is this true faith, it is this this convicting, convincing type of faith and the truth of the word of God for which we must fight. Listen, I come burdened by a message tonight for, for us. We need to get convicted of the truth in our hearts. We need to fight to keep the conviction of truth in our hearts at all times. Because our adversary, the devil, has been questioning truth and trying to place doubt in the minds of men and women as to the truth of God's word ever since the Garden of Eden. And he's not stopping anytime soon until he is finally chained up and cast into outer darkness. He's always going to be fighting you to get you to doubt God's word. So you need to get convinced and you need to get fully persuaded. I'm sorry, Sister Ellen, I'm I'm speeding up here and and, and I'm I'm getting excited. I need to be convinced and I need to be convicted that this is true. And I need to be so convinced and so convicted that I will fight to the death to hold it, to keep it, to maintain it. As long as I'm a part of this church, nobody's getting in that pulpit and preaching any other salvation or any other gospel. I'm like Paul, let him be accursed. Don't you get in there thinking you're going to teach Sunday school and you ain't teaching the truth. I'm going to find out about it. I'm going to sit you down. Okay, I'm getting a little pastoral, but I'm the assistant pastor. I have that authority. And if I don't do it, pastor will do it anyway. Amen. 
Sister Marie, go ahead before I get too excited. It's the same reason why Abraham, um, you know, it was counted to him for righteousness. He believed so much in what the Lord had spoken to him, without a shadow of a doubt, and that he put action into his faith. Faith was action. He was moved to do something about what was given to him, that truth that was given to him, that Almighty God, Yahweh, was the true living God. And so right. that persuaded him to have that faith in him and put that faith into action. Same with Noah. Noah was building that ark for how many years? It was said, what, was 100 or four or, or something along those lines. Building an ark for 100 years? You must be truly persuaded. And did he have a Bible? No. No, he did not have a Bible. And we have the written word of God, and it is hard for us sometimes to receive conviction and to apply that conviction into our hearts. And so if we know the truth, if we have the Holy Ghost, we should just obey the Lord. We should obey his word, not because, um, you know, necessarily the pastor is saying, and we should, we should receive that. But he has already spoken it. He has given it to us in his written word. He's put it, he put his own spirit into your life, into your soul. So we should receive it and obey it. And when we do that, when we obey it, when we put, we put that faith into action into our lives, and that's when we receive that power and we can walk in authority. I know Abraham wasn't perfect, and Noah had his mistakes too, but if they can be heroes of faith and they didn't have the written word of God or the Holy Ghost, I got no excuse. Pastor, go ahead. <laughs> I, I had a quick comment. I, and I hope I'm not going a little out, out in left field, but I, was, I, was, I wrote down in the column of my notes here that uh, I wonder if the Old Testament sacrificial system became nothing more than a way of buying their way into heaven. Uh, when the scripture says obedience is better than sacrifice, I think that part applies to the lesson that God wants obedience, not just our gifts. He wants our obedience to his word. Absolutely right. And, and, and yeah, you can look throughout the Old Testament, and you can find where God finally said, look, I don't want your sacrifices anymore. I, it's no good to me. It stinks in my nostrils now. Because you're just doing it to try to get on my good side, but your heart isn't right. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely, and that's right, and, and I meant to put that scripture in here, and I, I got so caught up in other things, and I forgot to, so we'll have to look that up sometime and, and find that, but, you know, if you don't want to believe the truth, in other words, he's going to turn you over to believe a lie, and then you're going to be really messed up. So we've got to fight to keep this conviction of truth in our hearts. We must buy the truth and sell it not. Buy the truth and sell it not. We must guard the truth. We must keep it close to our hearts. There's times when I literally just hug my Bible. Anybody ever do that? <laughs> Kissed it too. There you go. Listen, this, 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 this has carried me through some tough times. Carried me through some messes I got myself into. I need the truth. 
Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He also said that he is seeking those who will worship him both in spirit and in truth. First thing we need to understand really, though, is that truth is a person. John 14 and 6, Jesus is the truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? Secondly, the truth is also the words that the person of truth, Jesus, speaks to us. John 17, verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus said it. Thy word is truth, and this is what sanctifies us. Our obedience to this truth, our conviction of this truth, our faith in this truth is what sanctifies us. There's no sanctification without truth. It is our adherence and obedience to truth that sanctifies us and sets us apart. And such it was with the apostles and the early church, and such it is with us today. And so we've got to let the truth of God's word truly penetrate our hearts to such a degree that we are head over heels in love with the truth. I need to be in love with the truth. Because if I do, if I'm in love with the truth, I'll earnestly contend for the faith. Put Brother Kane on the spot. You love your wife, right? I hope you say yes. And if somebody tried to attack her, what are you going to do? <laughs> I'm going to defend her. <laughs> say, I'm going to call fire from heaven. Y'all better watch out. Don't mess with Alicia now. Brother James, you love your wife. Somebody, for the record, <laughs> for the record, I most certainly do for the record. Not just I do, but I most certainly do for the record. <laughs> with a kiss on the cheek to prove it. There we go. He wants <laughs> If somebody tried to mess with her, you're going to call fire down from heaven too. Or somewhere. <laughs> Micah, you love your mom, right? Who'd you think I was going to say? <laughs> you love your mother, right? You love your little sister, right? Somebody tries to mess with them, what are you going to do? Knuckle sandwich. All right, there we go. I don't know where he learned that from. He didn't learn that from me. You get the point. If I love the truth, I'm going to contend for it. I'm not going to let false doctrine creep in. I'm not going to let a watered-down gospel creep in. Truth, the unadulterated word of God, truth. So every Christian must believe that truth is something worth fighting for. Husbands, I hope you believe your wife is worth fighting for. I think we've proven that. My wife is worth fighting for whether yours is or not, so... Just establish that right now. And by the way, let, let me just let me just say this, husbands. Um, 
The same thing applies when the devil tries to get to your wife, too. You better start calling some fire down from heaven on that, too. Better start pulling out some spiritual knuckle sandwiches for that, too. Matter of fact, it's more important. Anyways, I don't have time to go down that road. So I've used this analogy before, but I want to use it again. Federal agents who are assigned the job of investigating uh, counterfeit money. When they go into their training and they spend hours, countless hours in training, they never once see a counterfeit bill in their training. Because the only thing they need to see is the truth. They need to see the real thing. And if they know the truth, if they know the real thing, they won't be able to be deceived by a counterfeit bill no matter how good the counterfeiter is. Listen, you better learn how to study and show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You better, you better love this and study this so much that you know it so well that you're not going to be carried away by every wind of doctrine, tossed to and fro. Not wavering, because a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You better know this, and you better know it to be the truth, and you better know it inside and out, and you better study it until you cannot be deceived. And stick with other people that can help you with that. Counterfeiters, uh, agents, the, the federal agents, they study it, some of them say, till they're sick of it. It's all right. Sometimes the word of God will make you sick, bitter, turns your stomach a little bit, makes you feel bad about yourself, but you keep studying anyway. Study it until you can't study it anymore. And by the way, you're never going to exhaust it. No matter how much you study it, you're still going to see new things. Amen? All right. We need to do that with the truth. So why is this so important? Why is it so important? Why was Jude urging the church to earnestly contend for the faith? Because in those times, in the times as, as in those in which the apostle wrote, and I could say that this is so important to us today in light of the times in which we live, many men who had come in, who were trying to seduce the church into believing in a false idea and doctrine of grace. And now we're getting to the meat of this lesson. We've just been having an appetizer up until now. (laughs) We're getting to the main, the entree now, the main, main course. We must have the correct theology of the grace of God if we expect to reap the salvific benefits thereof. I'm going to say it again and say it slowly again because I want to make sure we understand this. We must have the correct theology of the grace of God if we expect to reap the salvific benefits thereof or the benefits of salvation. Sorry, Sister Ellen, that's not a word we use often. I got to know what grace really is, what it really means, 
if I expect to get salvation out of it and truly be saved by grace through faith. Look at Jude 4 again. There are certain men crept in unawares. He knew who they were. He says certain men. He didn't call them by name. He could have. They all knew who he was talking about. Certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And we're going we're gonna to just focus in on that part. We don't have time to get into the denying the Lord God and all that stuff. Because when you turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, you're d- denying him anyway. But there were certain influencers who had come into the church, and they were teaching about grace in such a way as to turn it into lasciviousness. Now, that's a great big word, and I'm not that smart, so I had to look it up. Lasciviousness. It means unbridled lust, excess, licentiousness, bonus points if you can define that word, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, and insolence. Those are some pretty strong words. Lasciviousness is no joke. In the church in Jude's day, there was a popular teaching that the grace of God gave Christians a license to do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, however they wanted. It's called lasciviousness. Their ever-growing appetites were unbridled, unrestrained, uncontrolled. They let their flesh run wild, and then they used grace as a net to catch them when they fell. Grace was their escape plan. And by the way, the Bible does say that the Lord is not going to allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with every temptation uh, make a way of escape. All right, that's true. But grace isn't just your way of escape. It's a way of escape for your past sins. The ones you repented of when you had your new birth experience. And the ones that you slip up every now and then and mess up and and maybe some sins of omission and things that you didn't really mean to do. But it's not talking about those ones you do on purpose and then think you'll go repent later. Oh, boy. Lasciviousness means there's no shame in my game. One of the words that stood out to me in that definition was insolent which means they were proud of their outrageous sinning. And they were impudent, which was disrespectful, in the manner in which they flaunted it. You know what that's like? Rebellion, yeah. That's like the person who stands by a no-smoking sign and lights up anyway, right in front of the police or the manager or whoever's in charge. It's the one who blatantly parks in a no parking right in front of somebody who can give them a ticket. (laughs) That's insolence. That's licentiousness. Such things should never enter the church. Can you imagine? There's no place in the house of God for things like that. 
But that is exactly what's happening. Maybe not right here in this church. I, we're not, I don't, I'm not saying it's, it's happening right here in this church. But before we all get mad at the early church about what they were allowing to happen in their church, let's, let's go ahead and check ourselves because there are far too many churches in our day that look, sound, and feel too much like the club or the, or the rock concert. Since when did the church try to model itself after the world? Since when does the word Christian mean world-like and not Christ-like? Why is it that we got too many Christians trying to be too much like the world? We got it backwards. I'm thankful for a part of a church that doesn't have it, to be part of a church that doesn't have it backwards. (laughs) And so Jude writes this letter to oppose this false doctrine and to exhort the church to oppose it strongly as well. And so I believe tonight that we must also contend for the faith in the way that Jude meant it. There's too much of the world knocking on the door of the church and being invited in. And let me just bring this home to you. The church isn't just the building. And it isn't just the the people that make up the church. It is that. But it's also your individual soul. Because you are the temple of the Holy Ghost. You are the house of God. And there's too much of the devil in the world knocking on your door and being invited in for you to live a holy life the way you're supposed to. And you're treating the grace of God like it's lasciviousness. You better stop acting like that. Man. Grace is not a safety net for us to use as an escape plan. We need to maintain the old paths. We need to stick to the truth. If it was wrong when the Bible was written, it's still wrong today. If marriage was between one man and one woman back when the Bible was written, when God ordained it, then it still is between one man and one woman. If something was an abomination in Scripture, it's still an abomination today. Go ahead before I get too excited again. God bless everyone. I just wanted to make a comment. Um, you know, we, we see Jesus warn, warning of us of these things coming in the end of time um, where he said if he doesn't shorten the time, no one will be saved. And I see it often, um, these friendly Jesus churches where they, you know, it's time of the apostasy. And, you know, I think Judas was giving us a warning or Jude was giving us a warning more than anything because these things are coming to pass, especially in our time. You know, um, we we are waiting for the Lord, right? And so I just wanted to make that comment as to we're going to see this more often, and this is a great lesson to know that, you know, God has been warning us for a long time, and he is at the door, and he's waiting. Um, he's just merciful, and that's that's just something I just wanted to make a statement absolutely and great point and and pastor i'll get to you in just a second but let let me just let me just say this look it's coming where they're going to try to force us to get this kind of doctrine in the church or not be able to preach the truth and and look we've got to earnestly contend for it this this lesson tonight is not so much trying to beat up any one individual or or beat up our church, by the way, because I don't think we really have uh, a huge problem, you know, with this in our church. And it's not it's not like I think this is happening in our church. We 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 stand for the truth and and we've got the truth and I believe we love the truth. But we need to be very careful that we don't let some of this stuff creep in. Pastor, go ahead. 
you were teaching, I was just thinking about 1 Corinthians 5 when Paul is addressing the church at Corinth. And uh, they thought they were spiritual. They thought that they were a church of grace and mercy, but among them was a man that was committing adultery to the point where he was sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul wrote to them and said, if you don't straighten it out, when I get there, I'm going to straighten it out. And so (laughs) so it's that same idea. I think that applies with the lesson because, you know, we we need to be spiritual and we need to have grace, but we can't be ignorant at the same time and ignore sin. Well, we need to be spiritual (laughs) and we need to have grace, but we can't be ignorant and ignore sin. I love that. And that's a great example, a great illustration of, of, of the lesson. And I, I have to add that for the next time I teach it. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> Listen, I am thankful for grace. And I'll be the first to admit that I stand in need of it all the time. But I cannot use grace in such a way as to abuse it. We cannot use grace in such a way as to abuse it. It would do us well to remember the words of John in John 1.14. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And look at this. Full of grace and truth. Listen, grace means I don't have to suffer the consequences or the wages of my sins. Which, by the way, is still death. The wages of sin is death, and it always will be. So, But grace means I don't have to suffer those consequences. Truth means, however, that if I do not line up with the word of God and follow the truth therein, I will suffer the consequences. Jesus didn't die just so nobody would go to hell. Now, he's not willing that any should perish, but he gave us free will. Here's what it comes down to. I used to tell people all the time at work when I was a manager, and I used to say, listen, I'm not writing you up. You wrote yourself up. You knew what the rules were. You knew what the expectation was. You chose to disregard it anyway. So you got yourself wrote up. Listen, I don't think God sends anybody to hell. They choose to go there. <laughs> truth means if I don't line up with the word of God and follow the truth, then I'll suffer the consequences. We need to stop using grace as an excuse. I'm going to give you a quote that I heard way back in 2000 and one probably. Hey, seems like way back. That was BM before Marie. Hey, maybe not the right word. No, maybe not right the right letters. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't think about that. Thank you. <laughs> it's not what I meant. Strike that from the record. Disregard that jury. <laughs> Y'all erase that from your memory. That's not what I meant. (laughs) Chaplain Robinson was teaching in Korea, and he said this. Chaplain Robinson's got to save me again here. Grace does not excuse what the Holy Ghost has enabled. Say it again because I was still laughing. Some of you too. Grace does not excuse what the Holy Ghost has enabled. What does that mean? Acts 1 verse 8, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You should be be witnesses unto me 
all the way to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? The power of the Holy Ghost is given unto us to be witnesses unto him to the world. But we cannot be witnesses to Christ if we are living like the world. So he gives us the Holy Ghost, and in so doing, he gives us power over sin. Paul told us in Romans 6, starting in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Verse 13, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You have a choice who you yield to. And then verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Now, many have tried to take that verse and say, you're, you're under grace, so you can, you, you can do whatever you want to do. Because sin doesn't have dominion over you, so, you know, you're under grace, so go ahead and do it, but you can just, you know, they, they pervert the grace of God. When we receive the Holy Ghost, we receive the power to break sin's dominion and power over us. We are enabled to live above sin. We are empowered by the Holy Ghost to live a holy and a righteous life. As a matter of fact, the Word of God tells us that the Holy Ghost, when we receive the Holy Ghost, righteousness and holiness is imparted to us. And because we have been empowered and enabled to live a holy and righteous life above sin, we are not excused to just yield ourselves to our sinly, fleshly lust any longer. You are not excused. You are without excuse. Now notice this. Paul says we're not under the law, but under grace. I've kind of said that already, but this amazing grace does not excuse our sins. People try to say that it does because, you know, Jesus understands our weaknesses. He's a high priest that cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. He's, you know, he's, he felt everything we feel. He was tempted in every point like as we are, and he knows what it feels like. And so just little old me, he knows what it's like, and he loves me, and he'll, he'll just go ahead, and, you know, he knows, he knows what it's like, so his grace will just cover it all. That's not, what we're, that's not what grace is. That's perverted grace. James, go ahead, and then we'll get Sister Marie. that we receive once we're baptized with the Holy Ghost. Um, I, I think we seem to forget how powerful and the importance of our personal testimony. Uh, we don't want to share too much with individuals, but I love when I run into someone that might have had a lifestyle like the one that I used to have. And I feel urged to share some things with them right? because they need to know that there's a way out. Yes. Amen. And so we all have testimonies, yes. unique testimonies. And so when people are told that there's a way out, they need to be able to relate to you. So sometimes you have to share some of your testimony so that they can see that it is possible and it's not just a slogan and you're not just trying to give them a pamphlet or you're not just trying to win them to another church. Right. They need to know that the power of God lives al is alive today and that it's possible and that he loves everyone. So when I see that these epistles are written and these letters are written, um, you know, we all have testimonies. 
and every now and then you'll see how some of them will bring up the facts of what they've gone through and that they're still standing and that they're still fighting right. the good fight. We need to have that same type of mind frame when Amen. we speak to people. Amen. Oh, my Lord, you, have ju you just have no idea not only what he's done for me, but what he continues to do for yes. me. So I just wanted to share that tonight. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Sister Marie, go ahead quickly, and then we're going to try to wrap this up. Well, with uh, to confirm what Brother James was saying is the word of God says that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And so it's not just somebody else that overcomes what we overcome even more every time we testify about it because it, again, it strengthens the faith that we have in God. Right. Also, grace, the reason why grace is stronger than the law is because it's not just the rules that you have to abide by. It's his written law in your heart. Right. It's so much deeper um, than, than what somebody, you know, a book full of rules that somebody right. might give to you. Jesus right. said, well, the law says that it's a sin to commit adultery, but I say if you look on a woman— to lust after. That's yeah, a higher law that we're under now. That's not written. That's not written. That's a higher law. And so whatever the word of God says, it has to be written in our hearts. We have to. It's just grace is so much greater because you're not going to be judged on just what's written, but what he's written in your heart. And if you go against that, then you're sinning even greater because you're going against the grace of God that he's already given you. Amen. Amen. Let it write on your heart. Let it get in your heart deep inside. All right. We, we're not going to have time to finish this, but listen, Jesus, by the way, I, I want to make sure that you understand there is grace. And he will forgive you if you confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right. So there, there's grace that's available. You can you, you don't need to leave here feeling like. Oh, I messed up, and, and I'm supposed to be better than that, and I got the Holy Ghost, and I still sinned. That's not what I'm saying, okay? You need to understand that. Like, we're, we're going to make mistakes. We're human. We're going to err, and there is still grace that is there for us. He is faithful and just to do it, which means he's not only he'll do it every time, but he's just. He's right to do it because that's what he died for. But that's not an excuse for me to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. All right? He'll do so as long as we are not living in willful sin. And I'm going to close with these verses. Well, this and then a couple more. But it says, if we sin, Hebrews 10, 26, 27. If we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. I don't have time to get into the questions, but willful sin is that which is premeditated with the intention of just going back and confessing our sins to the Lord so that he will forgive us so we can go back and do it again. I'll just keep living however I want to live, and then I'll ask for forgiveness. And then I'll keep, I'll, I'll keep going, how, living however I want to live, and then I'll go and ask for forgiveness. It's once saved, always saved. I can't be lost, but Scripture expressly teaches otherwise. There is no sacrifice for willful sin. In other words, the cross of Jesus is of no effect if you live in willful sin. The cross of Jesus is of no effect if you live in willful sin. Repentance is the way in which we apply the sacrifice of the cross of Calvary to our hearts, right? Repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart. 
And if I have a change of mind and a change of heart, I'm going to think differently about sin. Can I just tell you tonight that God hates sin? Oh, I feel the conviction of the Holy Ghost right now. I think we've gotten away from hating sin in the church. I'm not saying hate the sinner. But we need to hate sin, especially when it comes to our own lives. Sin ought to leave a bad taste in your mouth. Hate the, even the thought of you sinning. It ought, to, it, ought to just, it ought to make you feel like a wretch. Turn your insides all upside down. When you sin or when you, when you even think about sinning. I get mad sometimes when I get tempted by something. I'm like, why did that happen? I don't even want to. I get mad at myself. I get mad at, at, at whatever the temptation was. I get, I'm just like, because I hate it. I can't stand it. Guess what? If you don't learn to hate sin, you're liable to end up in sin. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God forbid. That actually means let it not be. It was a prayer. It doesn't have the word God in it actually in the Greek. And we've got to go. Can you want to stand with me please? God forbid in the Greek doesn't have the word God in it, but it's by implication a prayer to God. And it's an exclamation meaning let it not be or let it never happen. So whenever you see the word, the word God forbid in scripture, it was like that quick prayer that was uttered. Like, God, don't ever let that happen. Shall I continue in sin so that grace can, be, can abound in my life? God, don't let that ever happen in my life. Don't let it happen. Don't let me frustrate the grace of God. By having a perverted view of it. We need to have a proper theology of grace. I encourage you to read the rest of, the, of this lesson. At some point, maybe we can continue it sometime down the road or, or expound upon it. This could probably be um, just a huge, you know, long series of lessons because it's just a, a big subject. But I hope I gave you some things to chew on. And I hope it was a warning for all of us as a church. Be aware of what's going on. We're going to have to fight for truth. We need to earnestly contend for the faith. Amen. There's too many people with itching ears out there. And too many people willing to scratch those itches. But I'm not scratching anybody's itch. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to preach the truth. I'm going to do it in love, but I'm going to preach the truth. Why don't you lift your hands to the Lord. Lord Jesus, help us fall in love with truth. With you, Jesus. If I fall in love with you, I'll fall in love with your ways and I'll fall in love with your word. Let me fall so in love with you and with your word, God, that I won't be swayed one way or the other. I'm not going to pervert the grace. I'm not going to frustrate the grace of God. What great danger lies in that, just like the children of Israel. Even though they were chosen and elected by God and you showed mighty wonders and signs and doing everything you could to deliver them and choose them out of all the nations of the world.